there is going to be a lot of Scripture in the message that I'm about to preach. Uh, and I know I, I use a lot of Scripture in most of my messages. If it seems like it's too much to keep track of, I printed the whole thing out, and I can give you a copy of it if you would like to look at it later. Um, we're about to look at what I think is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. And so I wanted to show that this is not really unique. That this chapter in Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, has the same God in it who is present in the entire Bible. And so there are going to be a number of references. I printed four copies. If more people than four people want a copy of it, I can make more. And I just wanted to let you know that that's available. So if you're struggling to write down references and you're not able to, you can look at this later. Let me pray as as we approach the Scriptures. Father in heaven, you have promised to be our help, our present help, in times of trouble. Lord, I pray that we would sense your presence today. I ask that you would help us to hear from you in your word now. Be with me as I preach. May I be preaching in the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever trembled at the presence of God? Have you ever trembled at the presence of God? I went to Moody Bible Institute, which was founded by a man who was an evangelist. Never claimed to be a pastor. Didn't have professional training. But as someone who was faithfully preaching the gospel, he had an account where two ladies met with him and said, we believe that you need to speak the Spirit of God. And he recognized that he did. And Moody, writing about the experience and encounter he had, said he was so overwhelmed by the presence of God that he felt that he would have died if he hadn't asked God to stay his hand. He was overwhelmed by the presence of God. Have you ever felt anything, even a taste, like that? In our text today, people are about to meet God. The entire nation of Israel is about to see and hear a frightening display of God's power and glory. And let me remind you that after Genesis chapter 3, where the first sin is recorded in Scripture, after the fall of mankind into sin, God's presence is is hidden. So although he's ever present, you cannot perceive him. And we are cut off from fellowship with him because of our sin. And so the presence of God among his redeemed people recorded here in Exodus is an awesome thing. And it is not something that we should take for granted. The nation of Israel in Exodus 19 is about to meet the God who has been inaccessible since the mercy of God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. And in all of the history between Genesis 3 and Exodus 19, the times that people encountered God are the exception, and they are rare. And most people do not experience His presence in any tangible way. The absence of God from Genesis 3 to Exodus 19 is a really important reminder that as sinners, we do not know 
who God is on our own. We are not born knowing Him. And because of our sinful nature, many of the things that we think we know about Him are wrong. The most important thing in this life is to know God as He is, not as we think He is. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. He says that in Isaiah 55 verse 8, he makes it so clear that many of the assumptions we have about God are not accurate. And that is why we have his word. Yet we are all tempted to think that God thinks and acts just like we do. So that as we approach the living God, we must do so in humility recognizing that all of us are tempted to shape him in our own image and likeness and to idolize all of our personal preferences and private thoughts, imagining that God is really like us, even though he says so clearly, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. The mistake of making God in our image is deadly. If the God you believe in never disagrees with you or calls you to do something that you do not want to do, you are in grave danger. The Bible teaches two radical truths. The first is God is love. No sinner is beyond the reach of his love. And he answers everyone who calls unto him in faith. That is an incredible encouragement. This is a truth that we love and we must never forsake it. God is love. God is the father who welcomes prodigals with open arms. The second truth is this. God is awesome in holiness. And we should tremble before Him. There was no hope for the prodigal until he repented and returned. And without repentance, there is no restoration. God's holiness says that we must come to Him on His terms, not ours. And our great danger today, both within the church and without, is that we want to experience the love of God without repentance. And that is impossible. Today we are going to see a passage where God's awesome glory was on display before the whole nation of Israel. We heard from our scripture reading in Matthew and John how the glory of Jesus caused the disciples to tremble in fear too as God surrounded him with the cloud and his voice spoke and said, this is my beloved son. They were terrified. There is not a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They are both the same God, equal in glory. Those who trembled at Sinai would tremble at the presence of Jesus at well when he is revealed in glory. That's the whole reason that the gospel writers describe Jesus ascending a mountain and showing his divine glory. We should remember the Mount of Sinai where God revealed his and recognize that Jesus is showing that he is the God of the Old Testament. And as we go to the text this morning, I want to introduce it with a single verse from chapter 20. So if you haven't turned there yet, let me encourage you to turn there with me. If you need a, a Bible from one of the seats, you can find Exodus 19 on page 60 of the Blue Bibles and page 71 of the large print Bibles, and those page numbers are not right there. So page 60 of the Blue Bibles and page 71 of the large print Bibles. 
And once you find Exodus chapter 19, look with me briefly at chapter 20 and verse 20 to introduce what God is doing in Exodus chapter 19. Moses said to the people who are in the presence of God as shown in Exodus 19, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. Why? That the fear of Him may be before you. Why? That you may not sin. Exodus 20.20 says this, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. Notice that the verse says, do not fear. And at the same time, God wants the fear of him to be before us. In Hebrew, the exact same word for fear is used both times. It's not as though one is a lesser, weaker kind of fear, meaning respect, and the other is a stronger kind of fear. It means That they are both the same sort. But there is a healthy fear of God and an unhealthy fear of God. He does not want us to be in terror of Him that we would be destroyed. When He says, do not fear, they recognize the danger of God's awesome and holy presence. And He says, do not feel like you will be destroyed. This presence of God is for your good. He wants you to have a healthy fear so that you may not sin. He does not want us to live like abused dogs cowering in some corner, terrified of Him. That is not the healthy fear of the Lord. But the healthy fear of the Lord does recognize the awesome power of God and the real danger of forsaking Him. I believe that what Moses is saying here in Exodus 20.20 is that as the people have trembled in the awesome presence of God, they recognize that no man can stand before Him and live. But God has not come to destroy them. His presence in all its awesome glory is good for them. In other words, do not be afraid. The fear of the Lord itself is good for you. His presence is not for your harm, it is for your good. The real harm, the real danger, is to remain separated from God by your sin, acting as if He does not exist. If you lack the fear of God, turning away from Him will destroy you. That is what should terrify us. That's why God says in Jeremiah 32.40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. He is promising to bless His people. And notice how He does it. He says, I will put the fear of Me in their hearts, that they may not turn from Me. When Jeremiah writes hundreds of years later, they have already received the law, they already know what Moses taught, and yet they have wandered away from it. And God is promising in Jeremiah, He will make a new covenant so that that is in our hearts. It's inescapable. But what does it do? It causes us to fear the Lord. The real danger is in turning from God. And we need the fear of the Lord to keep us from doing that. So this morning we are going to see how Israel trembled in the presence of God. And my prayer is that we would all grow in the good life-giving fear of the Lord. So first, we are going to see in in chapter 19, the call to commitment, then the call to consecration, the presence of God in power, 
And finally, the danger of God's glory. And that's my outline this morning. You can look at it in the bulletin and follow along as we go through the text. In each portion of Scripture this morning, I want to demonstrate that not only is this true of the people of God in Exodus chapter 19, but that it is also true for us as believers. God calls us to commitment. He calls us to be consecrated. His presence with us is in power. And there is real danger in God's glory. So number one, the call to commitment. Look at verses 1 through 6 with me. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God calls them to obedience. Notice that this call is based on the salvation he has freely given them. Verse 4 says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And they did nothing to achieve their salvation. God gave it to them. And as God's saved people, he calls them to obedience that will make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, a priest, one of the main functions is representing God to the people. And so as a nation of priests, their responsibility was to really tell the world what God was like. And you and I have the same responsibility. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 12, Peter quotes the same passage from Exodus 19, and he holds it to be true for every believer in Christ, not just those in professional ministry. But he says, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy people. Have you ever thought about yourself as a priest, as someone who represents God? That is part of why our obedience is so critical. Because you and I represent God to the world. If you do not obey him, you make him look bad. Peter says, since you have received God's mercy... Since your sins have been forgiven, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter calls New Testament believers, Christians, to lives of holiness in preparation to meet God. In other words... You and I are looking forward to meeting God, not on Mount Sinai, but at the return of Christ. And since we have received mercy, we are to function 
as his priests representing him to the world. And we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Things like sexual immorality, things like drunkenness, gluttony, envy, fits of anger, divisions. It's easy to look at the big sins of drunkenness and sexual immorality, but recognize we are to abstain from divisions. When we tolerate disunity, when we are grumpy with each other and do not seek reconciliation and forgiveness, we fail to represent God as a kingdom of priests. We fail to show His glory. Peter says those passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Do not give in to them because you are called to represent God. And it is a sacred calling. That sacred calling means that we are called to consecration. And this is my next point. And consecration is a word that we don't use very often. It means set apart. When something is special, you separate it from other things so that it's only used for its intended purpose. So for example, fine china is set apart from regular dishes. You don't use it on regular, regular meals. You set it apart and you use it on special occasions. Holidays, when the whole family is there. Guests that you want to put out your best dishes for. Or, another example, my grandpa Johnson had a chair that was his chair. We knew as his grandkids that we were not supposed to sit in it. It was set apart for grandpa's use. And you and I are to be set apart for God. We are not our own, but belong body and soul to God. And we are to live for him in purity. So look with me at what this kind of consecration really means. The call to consecration. You can read it in verses 7 through 15. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded them. He's clear about his call to obedience. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. When Moses tells the people of God's call to obedience, they commit themselves to obey. And God says he will meet them so that they will hear God speak with Moses and believe forever that what Moses tells them really is from God. And this is huge. The God who drove Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin is now going to meet with an entire nation of people. But notice, notice why he recognizes that the people need some proof that he is the one who is revealing the law to Moses. 
God is well aware that we are always tempted to dismiss his word. So he demonstrates to his people that he really was speaking. And in preparation for them to meet him, he warns them to set themselves apart. And you can see what they mean by consecration by three things that are listed here. Before I describe them, let me be clear. This is a special kind of consecration where they prepare to see and hear God's glory. They are setting aside a special time to meet him. And although I am saying that all of us are called to continually be consecrated, to be set aside for our entire lives, what they are doing now is they are setting aside a specific time to meet with God that would forever change their lives. And that consecration means they are going to do some things that you and I do not necessarily want to do all day, every day that we are not called to do. So we need to look at this consecration, this time of seeking the Lord and understand why they did what they did and how we should occasionally do what they did so that we can permanently be set aside for God's use. So first, their consecration was of physical space. They were set apart from where God's glory was going to be. They could not go near the mountain where God was throughout both Old and New Testaments. Every time someone encounters holiness, it is a fearful and potentially deadly experience and they needed to be separated from that glory by physical space to such an extent that if someone violated it, they were not even to lay hands on that person, but they were to receive the death penalty and they were to do it by throwing stones at them so that they themselves would not even touch the glory of God second hand. They were separated by space. Second, there is a consecration of washing. The people cleanse themselves from the everyday dirtiness of life. Think for a second. What do people do before going on a first date? You shower, put on perfume or cologne, you brush your teeth. Those are all mandatory when you meet someone special. And if we do that for another human, it makes sense That as the people prepare to meet God, that they would clean themselves physically. This is a recognition that through no effort of our own, in a regular course of living in a fallen world, we get dirty. And as we need to be cleansed continually, as we seek the Lord. And I believe that's part of why Jesus gave us the commandment to remember his death, which we will be doing next week. We must regularly examine our hearts and seek God as we remember Jesus' death for our sins for a kind of spiritual cleansing. And the last thing that that they do to be consecrated and set apart might be surprising. They were to consecrate themselves sexually by abstaining from all sex. And that is what it means when it says, do not go near a woman. What is going on there? None of the three ways of being consecrated that we've talked about could actually make people holy. God's not giving them some things to do that say, okay, now you're good enough. The reality is God is everywhere. No amount of distance in physical space can actually remove us from his presence. The psalmist says, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. Physical space by itself will not really separate you from God. Jesus says very clearly that washing the outside of the body won't make you clean on the inside before God. And the whole Bible, especially the Song of Solomon, but the whole Bible teaches the goodness of sex within marriage. So why in this moment, at this time, are the people required to wash themselves externally 
and to abstain from sex and to recognize a boundary that they are not to cross to separate themselves from the presence of God. Well, first, notice that right in our text, it's very obvious that this washing and abstinence and boundary, it doesn't actually make anyone holy. No amount of washing can make you clean before God. Only the blood of Jesus does that. And this truth is obvious in our text because even as they purify themselves and set themselves apart, they are still told, stay away from the mountain. Doing these things does not make you acceptable before God. Second, there is nothing wrong with sex between married people. Abstinence does not make you more holy. There is a real possibility that it will make you less holy as you are open to more temptation. So if they cannot make themselves holy, why are they doing this? Well, I believe the answer is, there are times when all of us should periodically set aside good things in order to seek the Lord in a special way so we can know Him better and learn to obey Him. We should prepare ourselves when we seek the Lord, recognizing His awesome holiness. When we are desperate for God, perhaps in a time of fear or crisis, or perhaps when we are just hungry for Him, recognizing that we need His power and presence in our lives, it makes sense that we would, for a time, go without some of His good gifts while we seek Him. The New Testament cautions us against abusing a a type of fasting, whether it's from food or for sex or for TV or for anything, because fasting can lead to pride. That's a real and a deadly danger. But, I think not many of us are in danger of being proud because of our fasting. I think most of us are in danger of not meeting with God at all in our daily lives because we simply never set aside time to seek Him. Think for a second about the chair that I mentioned a moment ago that was set aside for my grandpa to use. When we sat in grandpa's chair, the problem was not that we defiled it. It wasn't as though, I promise, we bathed as children. We were clean. And we were his grandchildren. He loves us. But by sitting in that chair, we filled it up full of very good things, but we made it impossible for him to use. And in the same way, God has designed each of us for a purpose and a use. But if we fill our lives with other things, even if they are good things, There is nothing left for God to use. And it is possible to fill up our lives with things that are good gifts from God, but we can become so full that we have no room for Him. The Bible says we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. When we don't seek God, we will not know what He has called us to do. And that means that sometimes it is good to empty the chair, so to speak, to get rid of distractions, to put down your phone, to turn off the radio, to skip a meal, to sit in silence, and to seek God. Let me be clear, 1 Corinthians 7, it's one of the New Testament passages that talks about married couples voluntarily going without sex for a time for the purpose of prayer. And again, it's not because sex is bad. Paul is actually saying the main point of that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 is that couples should not deprive each other. That's his main point. But the only exception to that rule is that sometimes, for the sake of prayer, it's okay to agree to skip sex. Not because sex is bad, but because prayer is that important. So the point in staying back from the mountain, in washing, and in abstinence was all in order to be ready for the presence of God. Let me ask, have you ever sought God 
by giving up something good that you love? Are you wrestling with a sin? Are you having trouble in your marriage? Are you anxious about the future? Are you worried about an unbelieving child? Are you worried about the future of our church? Let me ask you, do you ever seek the Lord in an intentional way, setting aside something so that you can seek his presence and his power? The book of Acts shows the New Testament church doing this multiple times, being devoted to prayer, sometimes fasting. And they pray as they wait for the Holy Spirit and they pray as they are persecuted and they pray and fast as they receive direction from the Holy Spirit. The normal life of the church is guided by times of seeking the Lord. And I believe that we as a church, First Baptist of Holly, need to grow in this seeking the Lord. It is a good and a fair question to ask how much of what we do as a church could be done by non-believers. Are we actually and really seeking the leading and guiding of God? Are we trying to follow his guidance? As Israelites obeyed Moses' instructions for this time of of coming near to God, God describes what his presence will look like. And look at verses 16 through 20 with me. Exodus 19 says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Notice the presence of God in power. The presence of God in power. This is one of the most mysterious passages of Scripture. Some people believe that the presence of God on the mountain was Jesus Christ appearing as a man before he was incarnate and that Christ appeared to Moses because the scriptures are so clear that God is a spirit and what else would it mean for the spirit of God to come down in a way that Moses could see and hear? What does it mean that God came down onto that mountain? The truth is, we don't know. Whether or not it was Christ, here's what we do know. His presence shook the mountain. It thundered. And it was shrouded in fire and in smoke. And all three of those things, something to feel, something to hear, and something to see, are tangible demonstrations of His power and the real danger of His presence. If you have ever been startled by thunder, burned by fire, or shaken by an earthquake, you can understand Fearing the presence of God. And let me remind you that all of those images of fire, of earthquakes, of thunder, all of those will be present at the return of Christ. We don't have time to turn to Zechariah chapter 14, but let me encourage you to look at it later. Zechariah 14 describes the coming of the Messiah the second time. And let me encourage you to look through the book of Revelation. There are earthquakes, fire, thunder, and trumpets. The awesome power that is on display here at Mount Sinai is the same awesome power of Jesus Christ 
And it will be evident to all when He returns. Let me ask, do you worship Jesus in that kind of glory and power, trembling at His presence? When you think about those things, it is understandable that the people trembled. And the first thing that God does when He speaks, He doesn't actually tell the people, don't be afraid, not at this point. At the first thing He does is he tells Moses again to warn the people of the danger of God's presence. So look with me, the last point this morning, the danger of God's glory in verses 21 through 25. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. If there is any question of what it means that God will break out against his people, he specifically warns that they will perish if they come into his presence. And this is a graphic reminder that the wages of sin is death. Sinful people cannot come into the presence of a holy God. This is a hard truth that God is like this because we want to believe that our sin is fine and that coming into God's presence shouldn't be a big deal, but it is. I would be a terrible pastor if I didn't make it clear that through faith in Christ, we are washed and cleansed and redeemed so that we are free to come into God's presence as his dear children. We are forgiven and loved, but that cleansing from our sins does not in any way change who God is. The blood of Jesus makes it possible to come before God, but the blood of Christ does not lessen God's awesome holiness. Think for a moment about the reality that in order for God's wrath to be appeased, only the blood of his beloved son, Jesus, would satisfy him. That is radical holiness. Now, through the precious blood of Jesus, we can boldly approach our awesome and holy God. But many times we do so casually as if nothing we do matters anymore because of our forgiveness. The Bible says we should never have that attitude coming before God. We should never do that lightly or think that sin doesn't matter on this side of the cross. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 25 says it is more fearful to reject Jesus than it was to reject God of Mount Sinai. The presence of Jesus blood doesn't diminish this. It makes it even greater. Some of us treat God lightly by ignoring him, but God is too big to ignore. Some of us treat God lightly by minimizing sin. We might excuse it in ourselves and others. And many of us have family members who are in danger of the wrath of God. Let me ask you, are we faithful in praying for them and warning them? Or do we mistakenly believe that it doesn't matter? Are we tempted to believe that God will overlook sin? This passage in Exodus should remind us of the deadly danger of sin. There is an urgency for the lost to be saved and for the saved to be holy. Let me read to you as I close the words of James from James chapter 4. And this is James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 5 through 10. James says this to believers who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Do you suppose 
that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit He has made to dwell in us. But He gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That's what this message is about. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He says this to believers. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I want to challenge you. Do you seek God Daily. Do you consecrate some time to spend with Him? Do you make it quiet so that you can listen to the Holy Spirit? The Bible says, be still and know I am God. Are you still? Do you seek His cleansing from your sin? Remember, the fear of the Lord should be on our hearts that we may not sin. That's not just for unbelievers. That's for believers too. Do do you fear Him? Do you ever fast? Have you ever given up a meal to spend time in prayer? Let me ask you today. Commit to spending some time in prayer. Pick a day this week that you will fast. Some of you, I would challenge to go 24 hours without food. Some of you need to go 24 hours without news. Some of you need to go 24 hours without turning on a radio. All of us need to seek the Lord. Let's take a few moments and seek Him now. And in just a moment, I will close in prayer. Let's pray. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, and you know that you need to seek Him in a special way, let me urge you to tell Him right now. Say, God, I will commit... I'm going to spend some time fasting on Wednesday. Lord, I will, I will go without my regular news program so that I can be devoted to prayer. Let me encourage you to tell him what you will do and be faithful to do it. And in just a moment, I'll close. Father in heaven, In Isaiah, you promised that you will look to the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at your word. Father, help us to tremble at your word. Forgive us for living lives that are so full of other things that we have no time for you and help us. Help us to know your awesome holiness. Help us to appreciate the precious blood of Christ that was given for us. May we seek you, knowing the fear of the Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.